Crime cast and I'm Janelle. I was not ready for that. <laughs> I told you. I'm Vicky. Right before, right before we started, she said, I'm going to use a bunch of voices, but did not clarify when. So the I, was whole not, time. I was definitely not prepared for what just happened. I'm Vicky. Sorry, guys. You know, I just got to get into the mood when I'm talking about crimes in the old times. Oh, my God. I Oh, God. Um, If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. Do you have a special hello? Well, all I gotta say is you better buckle up. Oh, my God. I cannot. (laughs) So, I'm gonna assume it's gonna be a good show because it started started off like a hoot today. But first, we're gonna head over to the newsroom in current times. In current times. Okay, so today our story comes from Detroit, Detroit, where an Oakland County Sheriff Officer, Sheriff Michael Bouchard, noticed a weird car driving around. And so they pulled this car over and he walked up to the window and the guy in the car said, who are you? And Bouchard said, I'm the sheriff. Who are you? And it turns out that he'd originally thought the car was a Bloomfield Township Police SUV. And he saw that the front windows were, like, way too tinted Mm -hmm. for a normal police car. And there was a decal on the side that said emergency response. And on the back, um, where was it? On the back, it said police interceptor and had four numbers as if it were a police vehicle. Mm -hmm. However, they ran the plates and it came back to an individual's property, like an individual's home. And so the driver was pulled out. He was in possession of a loaded handgun and a knife, didn't have a concealed pistol or weapons license, and they still don't know um, like what the motive was for driving around in a fake police vehicle, kind of. Power. <laughs> Maybe I, it just seems really weird, but I love some people I, get their jollies faking being a police officer. I love the idea of somebody like driving around in a fake police officer getting or fake police vehicle <laughs> inside <laughs> of a police officer <laughs> would be really impressive. Yes. Um, getting pulled over and the first question being like, "Who are you?" To who are you? Yeah, right. I'm the sheriff. I'm the sheriff. <laughs> oh my God. That's like what the I Spider-Man were going to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. So he was arrested, but he's not being held at the Oakland County Jail. But he is awaiting charges for this. I think they're trying to decide what to charge him with yet. But um, so we'll see what happens. But then I just oh, thought it was really day. funny. The picture definitely looks like one of the like unmarked 
like black SUV mm-hmm. police vehicles. But I drove like a late nineties Caprice and people always thought I was a fucking police officer. Was it white? It was white. Yeah. But it didn't have a light on it or anything. I was like, yeah. you could very clearly see there's a petite young girl driving it <laughs> with like crazy women, colored hair and red lipstick. Women can do anything nowadays. Janelle, you could be a police I officer. I mean, I could be, but not with rainbow colored hair because <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I was like fresh out of high school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's that. That's yeah. the news. Um, we're going to mm-hmm. move on to Netflix and Gil. I'm sorry, your voice at the beginning has <laughs> totally like thrown me off for this whole episode. Ooh, uh, wee, I can't wait for Netflix and Gil. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, we're talking about The Pharmacist. I have not seen this. Okay, I have started it. I haven't quite finished it yet. But it's interesting because it's a take, it's like a different take on these true crime documentaries. Mm-hmm. So it starts off with a pharmacist in... Uh, Louisiana. It's like a really tiny town, Louisiana. And his name is uh, Dan Schneider. His son is murdered buying crack in the Ninth Ward, which is like right next door to where they were at. And it's kind of this um, they talk in the first episode about white flight and Mm -hmm. everybody moving out of the Ninth Ward when African American people started moving in. Mm -hmm. And it kind of caused this rift between the two areas. And in the 80s, when crack cocaine became like this, the thing to have and got into some of these low income areas. Like that's where the people from like rich St. Bernard next door would go over to the ninth ward to buy crack. Mm -hmm. So he starts off on this mission of getting justice for his son's murder Mm -hmm. because he was getting no response from the police. The great thing about this is like once he started getting some, pushback from the police he literally started recording everything Hmm. like everything okay so he they have so many tapes of like conversations with police and like various yeah so it starts off like that but um it moves into this uh crusade to look at opioid prescriptions Mm -hmm. and the opioid epidemic in the United States largely pushed by big pharma in order to make money. So this is why I say it's kind of an interesting take on the the like true crime genre because it is kind of that but it's also this like tale of social justice almost Mm -hmm. Um, because he does take on from what I gather I haven't gotten there yet but from what I gather he (laughs) takes on like Purdue Pharma Mm -hmm. and a lot of crazy shit happens and I'm just I'm very excited to to finish it but I just like Dan Schneider as a dude he's just like (laughs) he's a cool dude he is he's like very open about talking about his feelings with his son's murder and they play this tape of shortly after they found out about their son's murder of like him and his wife together crying and trying to like deal with it. And it's very sad. Like I was in tears. Yeah. Yeah, It was raw. That's a great word for it. It was raw. Um, But a very interesting tale. It's out now on Netflix. I think I actually did put it on my list. It just came out. It sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah, it just came out. I wasn't sure. I am so bad at remembering the names of things. (laughs) I just read the descriptions and then I just like... (laughs) 
<laughs> go off of that. I never yeah. read what it's called. Yeah, it's, it's the bad. yeah. So this one is the pharmacist. Check it out. Um, we might circle back to it after we finish it and and give some more thoughts on it. Some but we'll hot see. takes maybe. No. <laughs> so Janelle, <laughs> are you I, ready, I, I think Vicky? I was going to ask if you were ready, but I think you've been ready. Oh, I've since been we ready started, my so. whole life for this. Episode. You go, you go for it, girl. All right. <laughs> So I just want you to get in the mood by thinking of like a nice Ken Burns documentary. Okay. I want there to be some like old timey player piano music running through your mind in the background as I regale you with this tale. Okay. <laughs> oh I God. decided to pick man-made disasters, which I was very excited about. This is a great topic because this specific case, and I'm like, how can I spin this case? Because I love it, which is a terrible thing to say. I love it so much. It's the most ridiculous thing I have ever read in my whole life. Vicky? I'm so ready. Vicky, I saw Vicky. I before we started recording, I think I told you I saw the title of this and was like, oh my God, what what? what? Vicky, how do you feel about being sticky? <laughs> I guess it depends on the context of the stickiness. Do you do you hate stickiness? Because I hate stickiness. Generally In all manners. Generally of speaking, yes. What about being sticky to death? <laughs> I don't even know if these are real questions these anymore. These are real questions. I'm trying to play with you in this space, but I cannot I can't, take it seriously. I can't help myself. Okay. All right. Well, Woo. my tale will be full of dastardly, sticky disaster that will leave you wanting to run to the nearest shower. <laughs> Sweet, sweet child, this is the story of the Great Molasses Flood of 1919. Oh my god. It was a tsunami of syrup. It was the Great Boston Molassacre. Oh my god. (laughs) Oh, what? Sometimes I write things and I can't even read them without dying. But this Molasses flood of nineteen ninety. I cannot believe you right now. <laughs> I love it, but I cannot believe you right now. I told you I took great care in this story. Oh my god! Okay, I'm ready. All right, I'm gonna do my best, Ken Burns. You ready? <laughs> yes, I am now. Whew. All right. Oh my god! This tale takes place in Boston, mid January. <laughs> I told you. Are you going to do this the whole time? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but, but it's good for the beginning because I want you to have flashes of like 1919 black and white photography going through your head right I'm now. I'm just going to lean back and listen. Yes. <laughs> the city was all hustle and bustle during this unusually mild winter. <laughs> Temps hovered in mid 40s for most of that time. At 529 Commercial Street near Keeney Square stood the Purity Distilling Company, known for producing ethanol through a distillation process of molasses. I'm sorry to forget how Ken Burns actually sounds. <laughs> oh, I'm going for soothing, soothing, slightly ambiguously southern man, okay? Oh my god. <laughs> 
So the company had used massive quantities of molasses to be distilled into ethanol that was turned into a variety of things, including alcohol and munitions. As you do. I don't um, know if I knew that you could distill molasses into ethanol, to be perfectly I honest. I mean, what else is it good for? Pancakes! Cookies! Cookies. <laughs> I actually do really like blackstrap molasses on lots of things. So, again... This case is just so near and dear to my heart. Oh, God. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Ships from the Caribbean would continually bring molasses into the docks of Boston, which would then make their way to the massive storage tanks atop the buildings around the block until it could be distilled. The molasses tank stood at 50 feet tall and 90 feet in diameter and contained up to 2.3 million gallons of the sweet, nasty, gushy, sticky stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's a lot of molasses. That is yo. too much molasses. Too much. <laughs> <laughs> One particular tank was a point of issue from the start. In Stephen Puelo's book, which I read a little bit of for this it's pretty decent i suggest it uh there were this is what he stated there were often comments made by people around the vicinity that this tank would shudder and groan every time it was full (laughs) and it leaked from day one it was very customary for children of the north end to go and collect molasses with their pails i just imagine like a molasses (laughs) spring right exactly (laughs) but like i still feel like that'd be real gross because you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be like spraying out because it's molasses and be like moving out down the side slow plip plop down the side of a metal container that's outside yep. in the elements mm-hmm. you just take that molasses home a little little steel that's taste gross. to it that's mm. gross <laughs> So, on January 15th, 1919, at 12.30 p.m., a groaning sound could be heard off in the distance, followed by a large bang. This would be the giant tank exploding forth from the top of a building. Oh, no. Yes. This is exactly what I imagined happening in my head. Now, here comes the intense, fast player piano music. A wave, which consisted of 2.3 million gallons of molasses, was moving at 35 miles per hour in a 25-foot high, 160-foot wide wave across the north end of the city. Just, like, oozing over the town very, like, it's not not even fast, but it's, like, rather quickly. I mean... (laughs) A hundred and sixty foot wide wave of molasses. It was only moving barreling towards you. Thirty five miles an hour. This is before cars. That's fast. I guess. <laughs> they had horses, right? Yeah. So within seconds, two city blocks were almost ripped away oh from God. their foundation and dumped into the harbor. The fire station that stood close by was decimated. The rail car system was destroyed. Cars were, well, train cars, were swept from their tracks. Homes were reduced to rubble. Oh, my gosh. As the molasses spread, temperatures began to drop. Because remember, this was a warm winter. Um, and so oh, as no. the temperatures began to drop, the molasses became stickier and harder to escape. Oh, no. <laughs> so. I just, oh, my God. 
That shit gets yeah. really hard when it's cold too. Oh, it's yes. just like indeedy do it. It's does. like it's like um like caramel that it's it just like, like gets hard. Taffy. Yeah, <laughs> you gotta keep chewing. Uh, <laughs> so the Boston police, the Red Cross, the Army, and Navy personnel were called to assist with the disaster. In the end, 25 people, most of which suffocated to death, died in the flood, and another 150 people were injured. Now you're probably asking yourself, how the fuck could you be murdered by molasses? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I am. what I'm about to tell you is just, it's sciencey science. And you know that whole trope about slow as molasses? Yes. It is not true. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Molasses is not that slow. I mean, if molasses moves at 35 miles an hour, not that slow. Slow as molasses means 35 miles an there hour. There we go. <laughs> so this is from a scientist from fucking Harvard University by the name of Dr. Nicole Sharp, and she explained in great detail how you can die from that brown stuff. Sharp said the flood could be broken down into two stages, and the first called the tsunami stage. The molasses is 1.5 times heavier than water and very dense. Mm. The tank piled so high with molasses stored a large amount of potential energy. When the tank ruptured, all that potential energy became kinetic energy. The fact that the molasses is extremely viscous doesn't matter for the first 60 to 90 seconds. The inertia is so much more powerful than the forces that can be moved by the viscosity. I'm so glad that she's explaining this at like an eighth grade science level. Exactly. I'm like, thank you. Yes. I get it. So when the tank broke and the molasses exploded, there was no outrunning it. When the initial wave came through, it just pulverized everything. People's bones were crushed, their bodies thrown onto buildings and train cars. Many survivors had broken backs and fractured skulls. During the second stage of the flood, the inertia runs out as the molasses spreads. That's when viscosity starts to matter. She's kind of like referring to liquid resistance flow. So as molasses flooded the streets, it slowed but became thicker and stickier and still difficult to escape. People were trapped with witnesses describing people trying to breathe while stuck, gasping for their lives and simultaneously trying to avoid inhaling too much of the molasses. The cold weather made things worse as the temperatures dropped. The molasses got harder and harder to move, which is the problem when you're trying to shift the rubble. Oh, my gosh. So rescuers had a absolute horrible time trying to free people. They had to spread ladders, like, horizontally across things that were jutting out of the molasses and kind of crawl across it. Yeah. Like the top of a monkey bar, kind right, of. Right, right. <clears throat> so it would take six months to have the disaster completely cleaned up. Wow. The city wound up having to have cannons of seawater blasted at the syrup to cut through it. Oh my gosh, okay. They like brought in fucking scientists to figure out how to get rid of all of this goddamn molasses. Oh my god. <laughs> so, now you're probably asking yourself, how did that tank collapse? I am indeed. I'm just going to say 1900s industrial magic. Yeah. <laughs> it was the best time for all of that. It was the best of times. It, it was, was the last of times. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a number of reasons that kind of combine together into this kind of perfect molasses storm. There was flawed steel. Safety oversights. Obviously, there was no OSHA. 
uh, fluctuating air temperatures. And of course, we talked about the principle of fluid dynamics by that wonderful doctor. Um, If you don't know what that is, it's the movement of liquids. Look it up. Uh, The tank itself was made of steel that was way too thin. The rivets keeping it together were imperfect and full of flaws themselves. The temperatures outside, like we said, it was really warm winter, and they were fluctuating like crazy, which paired with the structural flaws of the steel made it cause fissures and cracks within the tank. So the flaws and cracks of the tank were noted in documents of inspections, but nothing was ever done about it. So they knew. Oh my gosh, that's (laughs) going to be a common theme today. People brought it to the attention, so much so that a man who was working um, nearby found a piece of steel that fell off of the tank and brought it to the office and said, your tank is falling apart. And they were like, cool, thanks, and just shut the door in his face. Oh, my God. (laughs) So local residents and survivors of victims brought on a class action lawsuit against the United States Industrial Alcohol Company, who was the actual owner, um, because the distillery was a subsidiary. So it was a government agency that technically owned this, gotcha. this tank. Okay. It was the first of its kind of a class action lawsuit in Massachusetts. After three years of hearings, the company paid out $628,000 in damages, which is $9.26 million Holy in today's mackerel. money. Good for them. Yeah. There were some rumors um, during this case that the tanks were blown up by anarchists because this is like the time period of like Haymarket riot style anarchy. Oh my God. You <laughs> um, love it. I do you love, love it. it. I, I love me some Emma Goldman and everything about anarchy. Um, <laughs> there were some other uh, rumors that said it was tipped over on purpose to clear out the streets of undesirable people living in the area. Okay. Of course, those are all unfounded. It was really just a shittily put together tank that nobody gave a shit about. Yeah. And it exploded molasses everywhere. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So you can visit the site today. There is a historical marker in the location of the disaster. (laughs) And there's even an old wives tale that I'm going to have to tell you in my old timey voice. Oh, boy. Even on the hottest of summer days, you can catch a distant smell of some warm, sticky molasses in the air. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But that is the tale of the molasses flood of 1919, the great Boston Molassacre. (laughs) I can't even. You're welcome. (laughs) But seriously, go check out... Stefan Puelo's book, The The Dark Tide, The Great Boston Molasses Flood of 1919. It's pretty great. I don't know why I did a Bill Clinton thumb at you. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. (laughs) There's some really great And it will make this country pretty great. (laughs) It will make it pretty sticky. (laughs) Uh, Oh, coupled with the Bill Clinton, that was just too much. But there's some really... (laughs) I know. Take it to the limit. Um, There's some really great pictures I put in here. And the the newspaper article was just... It's just beautiful. So um, definitely check out the pictures of the disaster because it looks like a bomb fucking went off. It's insane. All from goddamn molasses. Oh, my God. You're welcome, world.
All right, so what voices are we doing with yours? <laughs> None. God damn it. Nope. Mine does not have any fun voices. No any piano music playing in the no. background. No. Oh my god, I really want us to put like player piano music. That's a tip. The that's a tip note. <laughs> I need sweet Ken Burns music in the background of mine. <laughs> Nope. I am going to be talking about the Kingston fossil plant. Okay. I would tell you, before we get started, to do a Google image search of Kingston Kingston fossil plant. Yeah. It was originally known as the Kingston steam plant and was opened as a plant built to provide electricity to nearby atomic energy installations. But you should see some like aerials of because it's, and I'll explain what all that stuff is in a minute (laughs) because it's important. Stacks and stacks and stacks jutting forth. Yes. Um, So it was located in Roan County, Tennessee. and it was in this, like, the eastern part of the state, built right next to both the Emory River and the Clinch River. It's also where the plant built a pond disposal area to deal with the fly ash coming out of the plant. Mm-hmm. I learned a whole lot about coal energy mm-hmm. <laughs> researching this. And I and why did, you don't like it, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't need that to tell right, you. Right, right. You know, yes. Like whole destruction of Appalachia. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but so I, I'm not tell you i did not include all of it in here because it becomes a little much it's it's burdening (laughs) yes it is um so fly ash is the byproduct of the combustion of coal and instead of allowing the ash to simply be released into the atmosphere they instead collect all of it so like the smokestacks are part of the fly ash thing but it like collects in the smokestack itself Mm -hmm. um although some of it gets disseminated into the air which is a whole other thing right um, so they collect the fly ash, they mix all of it with water, and they pump it into a retaining pond, which is like, when you look at the aerials, you can see where the factory is, sense what's and there's like a big retaining pond mm-hmm. kind of north of where it's at. You know, the thing about water is it's real hard to contain. <laughs> Sometimes. In this case, yes. <laughs> um, so they would mix it with water, pump it into a retaining pond, and then they let all of this ash settle to the bottom of the retaining pond Mm -hmm. and then the slurry is dredged for the solid material at the bottom that's moved to like drying cells like dredged drying cells kingston's ash pond was surrounded by a dike and as it often happens with information that like comes out after these kinds of things happen it turns out it had a lot of problems long before 2008 when this happened you Um, don't say right how long was this open open for uh, well, this particular thing opened in, I believe, in the 50s, okay, yeah. 40s or 50s. And so I'm going to imagine there's not been a whole lot of updates to the Right. Building. And then the Tennessee Valley Authority used wet storage um, facilities versus dry storage, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. a little later. Um with a lot of the plants because that was kind of the old way of doing it. Like Mm -hmm. you said, and no, they hadn't updated that kind of thing. So according to an article from the Chattanooga Times Free Press, quote, in both 2003 and 2006, leased in the landfill where wet fly ash was dumped were so bad, Tennessee Valley Authority repaired drainage and dikes around the retention pond. And for nearly a year and a half, TVA suspended the ash deposits in the landfill to allow the dredge cell to dry out and stabilize mm-hmm. so they kind of just like shut it down for a little bit in the chernobyl vibes and <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> um 
A couple of notes about fly ash is this isn't just a Kingston problem as the plant does the same kind of work um, that many places do in order to dispose of the byproduct. They are typically dealt with in one of two ways. So you've got dry storage or wet storage. Um, and the second is the largest stream of industrial waste in the U.S. Uh, or, or, I'm sorry, the fly ash is the second largest stream of industrial waste in the U.S. Wet storage poses a particular problem as the toxic elements in the ash can leach into groundwater and aquifers mm-hmm. or um, ponds will discharge this contaminated wastewater into rivers and streams. I told you, water is tricky. It <laughs> is, it is. And even just like a little leak is enough to stream in. And in some of the aerial photographs, you can see there's like a whole a space in one of the dikes where it was just like streaming into one of the rivers and they had a similar thing happen in a another TVA run mm-hmm. um, plant that they had to take care of that was its own disaster. This happened similarly close to us in McCollum Lake and all those people died of yeah. cancer. <laughs> yeah. Now dry storage has its own problems as well as it's essentially like landfill sites where ash is just like dumped mm-hmm. um, and all of that material can get picked up by the wind and then distributed because ash is also tricky <laughs> exactly um, there has been consideration in the past uh, by the EPA at as to treating coal ash as a hazardous waste, but which yeah, <laughs> which would kind of make sense, but it would also cost coal-fired power plant owners an estimated five billion dollars a year to transport the material to a hazardous dump, which is for their pocketbooks not super great. Yeah, but also like for humanity and stuff, you know. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, <laughs> there also seems like there hasn't really been a ton of oversight in these dump spots in the past. Like there isn't really to like our knowledge. <laughs> yeah, there there isn't like requirements for oversight mm-hmm. like of these things. So that's kind of an issue too. Mm-hmm. So. Back to the Kingston plant. Um, it seems that TVA knew about the leaks in the ash pond dating all the way back to the early 80s. Well, you know. <laughs> it's which, it, between... The from, little Dutch boy putting his finger in the dam. We'll just, basically. We'll just plug it up a little. <laughs> yeah, and it had had, every, it had repairs done almost every year since 2001. The two largest being the 2003 and 2006 that I um, mentioned earlier. There was an additional inspection report that was submitted in October of 2008 identifying minor leaks in one of the walls, but that report had never been finalized. Hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. If only because on December 22nd, 2008, oh boy. only a few months later, sometime between midnight and 1 a.m., a dike wall surrounding the ash pond broke releasing an estimated 5.4 million cubic yards of sludge. For perspective, this means that the surrounding area had sludge up to six feet deep. So many similarities between yours and mine. That's why I said, there's going to be a lot of patterns today. Man, it seems like we're just vibing on the same level. It's true. I mean, Um, mine is a little more fun, though. Now, unfortunately, the break in the wall and subsequent spill triggered a mud flow wave that flowed down towards some of the nearby residential area. Now, the nice thing, I won't say the nice thing, but it it was largely an industrial area, and there wasn't that much residential in the surrounding area so it covered 12 homes forcing one entirely off of its foundation making three uninhabitable and causing an additional damage additional damage to 42 residential properties 
The flow also washed out a road, ruptured a major gas line, obstructed a rail line, downed trees, broke a water main, and destroyed power lines. It was just like <laughs> obliteration. Just decimation. Yeah. 22 residencies were evacuated, and thankfully there were no casualties or injuries reported, which is good. very surprising. I know. (laughs) I know. Considering the time it happened when people would be, like, asleep. Yeah. Like, that's surprising. Um, At the time, and this may still be true, the Kingston Fossil Plant Coal Fly Ash Spill was the largest coal-related slurry spill in the United States. I was that's, like, that's a mouthful. It is. It is. And it's a weird, it's like a weird subcategory, mm. like specific subcategory of cold, like cold disasters. I don't know. But it's something. Yeah. I it's guess. something. It is. <laughs> um, so this is kind of like where the real shit show starts because oh God. now they got to clean the shit up. Yep. And that's normally. And it's a nose goes. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, totally. Totally. Um, so authorities from TVA and various officials attempt to like explain what was happening as damage was initially being surveyed officials said the amount of coal ash that had spilled was about 1.7 million cubic yards this was changed to the 5.4 million cubic yard figure i like said earlier after they were able to take an aerial survey jesus (laughs) that's not even the weirdest part the weirdest part (laughs) i didn't say it was weird fucked up like yeah okay so this is weird to me Mm -hmm. but um the officials had said the pond itself only contained 2.6 million cubic yards so they haven't been able to explain the discrepancy of like the fact that way more has spilled out than they said was in the pond to begin with well obviously they are not very good at paying attention to anything so they still haven't explained (laughs) that discrepancy they probably do not know how much their pond actually holds and they're just making an eyeball guesstimate yeah uh yeah probably (laughs) probably well and i'm wondering too like there could definitely be a small discrepancy because of the mud flow too like mixing with all the ash sludge stuff Mm -hmm. but like it's kind. Of, it's kind of like three, what, three, three point something, yeah, three, about three million, three million cubic <laughs> yards. Was well, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a big discrepancy. <laughs> yeah. The TVA, of course, made public apologies and stated that they had begun an effort to stabilize runoff from the incident. Obviously, residents were concerned for the immediate impact on things like I don't know, drinking water, mm. maybe. We never have water crises in the United States. Never. 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 Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water. Just saying. Yeah. So officials insisted their drinking water was completely safe. The EPA had done. I would have been like, drink it in front of me. <laughs> Which they did. Did they? Stop? They did do one did of those things. They do like yeah. a press release. Yeah. And they're like, I'm going to drink. You just hear it going. Yeah, right. I'm going to drink this water. <laughs> so oh God. the EPA had done some tests on the water the day after the spill, but they were taking tests out of the Emory River that were like um, surface water tests. Mm -hmm. And it showed that arsenic levels were 149 times higher than maximum contaminant levels, a total concentration of lead five times above the normal and slightly elevated levels of beryllium, cadmium, and chromium. Mm. But Also the, elements of paint. Yeah, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, the EPA also took samples of water from municipal water intakes and found that they did not contain dangerous levels of any of that stuff. So it wasn't the drinking water from the municipal spots. It was the river water that was like insanely 
contaminated, which isn't great. But I mean, like their drinking water, it seemed was safe from their own tests and like the EPA's tests. Um, They also did some tests of fly ash samples from uh, the road and from the inside of the power plant's ash waste storage cell. And these tests also showed uh, elevated levels of arsenic so high, in fact, that it would normally trigger a response from the EPA. But it seems like at the time, the agency felt like TVA had it all under control. Interestingly enough, about a week after the spill, the TVA released a fact sheet that, quote, confirmed the ash is not hazardous and that, quote, the levels in the ash are not high enough to be classified as hazardous waste, but are higher than EPA's screening goal for residential soil. So they're like, technically, it's not bad. It's just higher than what the EPA says it is. Yes. I mean, not that the EPA is the end-all be-all, because they definitely have their flaws, but... Right, well... Still a standard. (laughs) Yeah, and even if the EPA is saying, nah, this is, like, super hazardous, and you have TVA saying, no, it's just higher than your standards. It's It's not actually hazardous. Yeah, they're just trying to, like, you know, shine the shiny object at you and, you know, (laughs) be distracted. And the other thing was, as information continued to like pour out regarding the testing of soil, water, and ash samples, various findings from various groups, it became clear that TVA was like in kind of a feud with environmental group findings, claiming that they were just like trying to put out misinformation. Oh yeah, about what was going on. One hundred and ten percent. Which, oh my god, because it gets, you just had a disaster happen. Yeah, and they're just like, we don't want Ooh, nothing to see here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Cleanup efforts began immediately after the spill with the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency creating a plan to build barriers to stop the ash from getting into the Tennessee River. By December 24th, they began repairs on the downed railway and deposited rocks into the Clinch River to stop further downstream uh, contamination. They started removing some of the slurry from nearby areas to dispose of, but shifted gears a bit later and instead announced that they were going to spray seed and straw on exposed ash in order to combat dust and erosion. Straw? Yeah. You know, like, so it's similar to, like, when they do construction, they dig up all the roads. It's like the mats with the seed. Some, like, loose straw. No, 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 no. It's like the ground cover with the seed that grows. Yeah, yeah. So it's, of course, this feud between, like, the TVA and the independent environmental agencies continued the entire cleanup effort. Um, They very publicly stated that TVA would pay for testing of the water and at the same time refused to let independent observers like come in and take pictures or water samples from disaster areas. At one point, two photographers with an environmental organization, United Mountain Defense, went into the Kingston plant disaster area to capture photos of the disaster and were illegally detained by TVA police and held in custody for an hour before being released. Oh, my God. Like, super illegal. Oh, yeah. Super illegal. Like, what? What? 
According to 10 News, TVA also stated publicly that they would work to help those people impacted by the spill by, spill by, quote, buying homes for what it says was more than the appraised value. But sellers had to sign an agreement not to sue the utility in the future for any health problems. Yeah, damn it. The offers were take it or leave it with no negotiations. And many homeowners said the offers were too low to buy an identical house somewhere else. But refusing to take the money would leave them to live in an area where ash coated their cars and clogged their air filters inside their homes, end quote. Which is like such a standard douchebag business practice. This happens so fucking much. I know. I know. I want to flip all of these tables over. It's like, nah, give me the price for my fucking house. Yeah, they don't give a shit. No, no, they don't. And the fucked up part is 90% will get away with it. By 2009, the EPA had finally stepped in to take care of cleanup efforts, focusing on increasing the cleanup effort speed. They, when they started, they were moving at a, fa- a pace, moving, removing ash at a pace of 15 times faster than the previous cleanup effort. That is insane to me. That's like you guys are moving that fucking slow that the EPA was just like, now nah, we got this. It's just like a fleet of people to send. Starting with um, removing all but a thin layer of ash at the bottom of river, the EPA then went on to building an earthquake-proof wall and protective cap for the remaining 240 acres of ash on the ground. Oh, God. In 2015, (laughs) this was covered by feet of clay, topsoil, and grass, and the entire... This like entire cleanup effort cost TVA $1.2 billion, along with $32 million given to Roan County Schools. <laughs> I did. They were just like, oh. sorry. Sorry, your children are probably going to get cancer. Yeah. A hundred of the purchased homes were torn down, and most of the remaining land was turned into public parks with trails and fishing docks and sports fields. And ash. <laughs> And well, it's all under dirt, but still, yeah. 60 of the homes that were left standing were sold at auction. And some of the people that bought these homes were like people that were forced to sell um, originally. And they still like moved back to the area. Some of them. There were quite a few legal issues still at play, of course, as you would expect, including multiple lawsuits. Because I can hope so. Jesus. So. Jacobs Engineering is a company that was hired by TVA to do the cleanup for years after the disaster. The workers, however, were not given masks and were not protected from being exposed to toxic heavy metals and radiation in the coal ash. Fucking Chernobyl. <laughs> Chernobyl. And I, it's I mean, it's really similar to the 9-11 case, too, yeah. where they were just like, just give them a fucking respirator. How hard is it? Yeah. I give my students respirators when we're working with fucking plaster. Jesus Christ. Right. Right. Uh, A group of workers then decided to sue their employer, as you would expect. I hope so. Saying the ash could be responsible for their illnesses, including everything from skin rashes to lung cancer. Mm Mm-hmm. And in December 2018, a jury agreed, awarding, awarding a win to a group of 70 plaintiffs. Since the cleanup started, 30 people who worked on the cleanup died with ailments that can be linked to the ash, along with an additional 250 that are sick or dying. Um, and like I said, a lot of people have drawn parallels between this case and the 9-11 case mm-hmm. um, of the cleanup effort as well. Because like, 
you just all you gotta do is protect your people and like make sure they're getting medical checkups to like like this is why i want to become a recluse and go live in the fucking desert in a goddamn trailer because i hate everybody <laughs> and all big business and fucking burn it down <laughs> and i'll have a mask when i'm dealing I'm with toxic have a things goddamn hazmat suit <laughs> at all times i'm just gonna live in a bubble <laughs> seriously <laughs> TVA, of course, had its share of lawsuits, including a group of landowners suing for $165 million, the Southern Alliance for Clean Energy suing under the Federal Clean Water Act and Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, and Greenpeace calling for a criminal investigation into whether the spill could have been prevented. You don't say. Uh, All of it? 100% Mm -hmm. deserved, I think. Mm -hmm. I would think. Can you imagine if this happened a little bit earlier in time? It it would have been like threefold fucking worse. Well. And nobody would have been held accountable at all. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) In August of 2012, the verdict was delivered for the landowners finding TVA liable for the spill in the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of Tennessee, saying that TVA had not built the ponds correctly and that it had failed to train inspectors on the proper way to do their job, and it led to a failure in the dike. It's usually how businesses fail. <laughs> Improper training procedures. Right? <laughs> um, finally, the last thing I want to talk about is there's been a lot of criticism of the EPA response claiming environmental racism. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Have you? I, it's something I'm hearing more about now, mm-hmm. I think, just because news is like yeah, so much more widespread. Turn of phrase. I, I've heard yeah. it a little um, in response to the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. There was the socioeconomic um, issues. The garbage pile in Chicago, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really there's a really good podcast about that. I can't remember the name of, but um, it definitely happens, I think. And this is in this particular case, it's really Related to the relocation of the spilled coal ash from Roan County, a county with a population that was 94% white, to a town 300 miles south called Uniontown, Alabama, with a population that is 90% African American. And again, this is something that has happened more than once. It's in Alabama, you said. Yes. It's interesting that they cross state lines. Yeah. Well, it's right on the edge of Tennessee, but I'm wondering if they already had like a... Um, an area for it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not, I'll be honest. I didn't go too far down that road. There's a lot of other like stuff about EPA regulations changing Mm -hmm. and they were really relooking at kind of, well, I mean, right now they're trying to get rid of a lot of EPA regulations. Yes. (laughs) That's Um, another source. That's another story. But (laughs) after, honestly, after this disaster, um, this is, this was when Obama was still in office. Mm -hmm. The EPA was really looking at, um, kind of the coal f- uh, fly ash regulations that they had and what needed to be changed and what they could change at the agency level and like that kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you want to look into that, I do encourage you to look into that because it's just mm-hmm. a lot for me. It was a lot for me to take it at one really, this, time. This kind of a subject, it could be its own entire podcast. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> like, there have been so many like mining and, and coal related just, disasters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also say in 2008, the EPA dismissed, or I'm sorry, not 2008. This the year is important because it's Uh-oh. it's important. But in 2018, mm. the EPA dismissed a complaint saying the landfill in Uniontown was in violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, 
there there could be a lot of reasons for that. Uh-huh. One could be who's the person in charge of who's the person in the charge EPA. Who's the person in charge at, of the EPA? at right now? I don't want to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it. Why? Why is that such a problem? Why is the EPA being torn apart right now? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I that's, those are all great questions uh, for not this podcast. Why um, are we living in the hellfire? Yeah. Right <laughs> um, so I do encourage you to look into it because it is like a lar- It contributes to a larger conversation about clean energy and mm-hmm. storing things with hazardous waste and this transition from coal to clean. Like it's a whole thing. Um, yeah. But I found this one particularly interesting. One because I didn't. I guess I didn't realize that coal ash was a thing that like affected people. <laughs> well, I guess that was different. Well, one that was different from just regular ash. That's kind of just mm-hmm. like whatever. But that they had all of these requirements to disposing of it. I will oh, yeah. say, um, coal fly ash is really commonly used in concrete mm-hmm. mixtures and something else. But it was another like asphalty kind of thing. Um, but I feel like this happened at a time that I should have been cognizant of it. <laughs> I was 18. Well, I mean, and I do not remember this happening a at lot all. Of, a, I, stuff like this happens extremely regularly and we yeah. don't hear about it because of the uh, the impact and implications of it in yeah. a political well, sense. And in fairness, like there weren't any casualties. Yes, people's mm-hmm. house, like homes were destroyed, but nobody died, which is like you said, it's kind of astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody was injured. So, like, I mean, we'll see uh, with the fallout if anyone actually dies from right. uh, related diseases. But right. <laughs> yeah. And if I think if they do, it's going to be, well, I'm curious to see if they do any studies on the people still living in the area. I mean, they but I think should. <laughs> primarily it's going to be the people also, who are working to clean it up. Yeah. And it affects the wildlife because, oh my God, yeah. Jesus fucking Christ, this is uh, in a mountainous region. <laughs> yeah. And they have, um, I, I want to say I saw there were a Eleven plants that was that were owned by the TVA um, that still used the wet storage method, mm-hmm. and that they were working to eliminate that. And they might have gotten it down to five, I think, that still use that. Um, but there's got to be a better. I mean, I think just honestly, like a switch over to clean energy is going to be mean, the solution yeah, here. But that is the fucking solution. Yeah. But because I have family in the, in the South, and I I see what this does to people and i've watched many many a documentary about like appalachia and tennessee and west virginia and all the the coal mining and strip mining and all of this stuff and there's there's no way to get out of it for those people like when you're talking about them losing their homes they already have nothing they're already in one of the lowest socioeconomical you know areas like they don't have opportunity they don't have money they may have the advantage of being white but they still are not they're they're in poverty they still don't have the power to get themselves out of that situation yeah and every time something like this happens it happens to those impoverished people or people of color 100 percent of time all the fucking time (laughs) right yeah and part of it too is you're in a situation where it's it's like it's what yes it's what you've done for your entire life but like it goes back generations and there is just like a um i mean along with all the societal pressure and economic pressure it's Mm -hmm. like this family like pride thing Mm -hmm. almost too and it's hard for people to give that up and Mm -hmm. i get that so and there's just there's no opportunity outside of it right you know you have to leave 
in order to find something else. Correct. Yeah. So that was the Kingston coal fly ash spill disaster. It's a mouthful, but slurry spill. Yeah, I look up pictures of it. It's crazy and yeah. gross. That that came up when I looked up the plant. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So if you're trying, you started on a high note, I know. On a low note. <laughs> if you are trying to wait out the mad-made disaster in your area while help comes, mm-hmm. first of all, hang in there. We're sorry. Second We're of so all, sorry. listen to this podcast. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Hi, I'm Laura Murley, host of How to Be Less Awkward. My life is just like a huge, discombobulated jumble of awkward. <laughs> I'm really excited to bring you true life stories from some wonderfully open and funny people. <laughs> I didn't believe my story because I'm an 11-year-old kid. My friend was like, yo, man, this is a glory hole. I definitely felt pressure to frisbee. I mean, it was my first big boy job. I don't remember when I finally recognized this is a third nipple. We hope you check out the podcast. Okay, bye now. All right, guys, that has been our show this week. We got some events we want to talk to you about. Yeah. If you are in the Rockford area and you enjoy true crime, come see us April 4th at the True Crime Expo. We'll be there. We'll be there. 12 to 5, I think it is. Yeah. And we go on later in the day. I think like 3.30? Yeah, 3, 3.30 or 4, something around there. Um, but you can check out uh, hauntedrockford.com for more information. There's ticket prices. You can buy tickets ahead of time. There's going to be a whole bunch of people there talking about different kinds of true crime. Uh, there's going to be a film screening. It's going to be really great. I'm excited. This is one of our favorite groups to work with, I think. Yes. Yes, I, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of getting into the groove of these live live shows. Right? So Maybe we should do more. A little bit. Maybe a little bit. Maybe. So you can check us out there. When? Where? April fourth. Huntedrockford.com. Dot com. All your information. Do it. We are also going to be in Kansas City, July 11th and 12th for the City. I don't know football. I mean, they won the Super Bowl. Because they won the Super Bowl. That's not why we're going. No. We're going (laughs) for the True Crime Podcast Festival. For the True Crime, also a little bit for the barbecue and some art. Ramen. Yeah. Uh, Yes. This is going to be... Yeah. interesting we they have um there's gonna be a lot of podcasts there they have some live discussions going on yes. they're gonna have some live podcast recordings we are just gonna be there hanging out Chilling. saying hello chit-chatting meeting and, greeting. meeting and greeting <laughs> you can meet us in real life yeah. take pictures it's <laughs> mortifying I mean, you can no. it is mortifying but um so we're gonna be, be there celebrity oh. yeah. if you want to come out and see us and see all the other great podcasts you can find more information at tcpf 2019 nope nope wrong 20. year nope 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 <laughs> Going back in time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what year is it? TCPF2020.com um, for tickets and hotel information and all that fun stuff. Do you like that little movie reference? <laughs> Sorry. No. Do you listen to the news? All right, let's go. Uh, this is Ben. Um, ben Taste Yeah, on that note, we're, we're going to go now. Yep. Uh, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, The Enigma. Mm, it's so satisfying. So satisfying. I need a button on my desk. <laughs> of what? What sound? I don't know. Maybe just old time piano Arf. music. Just get a dog. Old timey piano music yeah. or like a zoom bang boom. <laughs> Again, zooks. That's gonna be my oh button. My we will see you in two weeks. Goodbye.
See you later. <laughs> you just sound like an old grandma now. I, I got to bring it back. See you later, Sonny. Oh, before you oh. leave, here's your pocket money. Oh, Sonny Jim, come back next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh, God. Good that I cheers myself. Ten young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another.